Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzschrauber. On today's show, government surveillance in the Arab American and Muslim American communities. Anyone who's taken a flight after 9-11 noticed some differences. You know, long lines at TSA, having to take off your shoes. But that experience might seem inconvenient, but everything's relative, of course. And being an Arab American or Muslim American post 9-11, there's a lot more to it than just having to take your shoes off at the airport. What, is it, what does it mean to be a Muslim American or an Arab American in the post 9-11 world? And how are our surveillance policies, whether it comes to social media or phone tapping, affecting this community? Joining me to discuss this is Yolanda Rondon, staff attorney with the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, that is ADC for short. Yolanda, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So Yolanda, just to start off the show, people might not be familiar, depending on where you're from and who you associate with, what it is really like after 9-11 to be an Arab American or a Muslim American, or basically to be perceived as being the same or similar to the perpetrators of the attack. So just give us a brief history of how things changed for Muslims and Arab Americans after 9-11. Well, Arab Americans traditionally were thought of as or classified as white by both public policy as well as in laws and regulations. After 9-11, Arab Americans all of a sudden woke up one day and felt they could no longer identify and celebrate their culture. They no longer refused and refused to dress in a traditional garb, refrained from speaking Arabic, um, went through extraordinary efforts when applying on applications to disavow the Muslim or Arab identity. But more so than that, they became targeted by basis of how they looked and facial features, including wearing a beard, including um, characteristics of, an, of their noses, as well as their hair texture. But more so than that, they woke up and felt that they were no longer American. Their identity was stripped away from them. And so they went through extraordinary laces, some to refrain from naming their children traditional Arabic names and refraining from teaching their children the Arabic language. So before 9-11, there were really no consequences or reasons to not celebrate this culture, identify as part of your culture, practice it, maybe practice your religion, maybe celebrate holidays. But because one day you wake up and things have changed, your incentives are now completely opposite and you want to de-emphasize those aspects of your life. Now, of course, after 9-11, we saw the immediate backlash where just there was racism, you know, people yelling at each other on the street. A lot of hate crimes. Yeah, we can attribute that to kind of the heat of the moment in the aftermath. But what if some of, you know, we're now 15 years, 16 years after the fact, what are some of the more lasting things? You know, not just the bad encounter in the street or things like that, but what are some of the lasting real tangible things that we can point to that are still affecting these communities today as a result of 9-11? Well, for one is the criminalization of the Arab American community. We now feel as if we have to apologize for the criminal acts of independent persons. But not only than that, we are also scrutinized in abnormal ways in which the only way and the only reason why law enforcement interacts with our communities from a security perspective, not from genuine community outreach or to help work with our community, but we're securitized and our, our 
cultural mosques and our cultural centers have been infiltrated. There's been an abundant use of informants and entrapment tactics um, in both our communities as evident in the NYPD mass surveillance um, policy and program that was just uh, addressed in the Rosary City of New York lawsuit, but as well as the fact of the naming and identification on the federal level of Arab cultural population centers like Dearborn and, and New York as quote-unquote top places for uh, terrorist recruitment. But also other than that is the aspect that the DOJ profiling guidance, the one that was recently revised, still doesn't protect national origin, sufficient basis discrimination. There are plenty of loopholes that allow for national security, um, CBP or TSA loopholes, which in a sense is the most encounters that our community has with law enforcement is when they're under inquiry or, or uh, investigation. And so essentially, our Americans' due process rights have been taken away from them in the name of security, but it's really about fear, not actual individual criminal suspicion. So I'm glad you brought up the NYPD because uh, I'm a native New Yorker. I was there during 9-11. Obviously, the 9-11 attacks happened in Manhattan, so the NYPD is a particularly important uh, law enforcement arm to discuss. And unlike, you know, some small town police department, the NYPD is not your average police department. There are 30,000 cops, which is a lot. Of course, you know, there's 10 million people in New York City, so maybe not that much. But the tools at their disposal include counterterrorism tools. And that's why we're talking about this on the Tech Policy Podcast, because counterterrorism is a lot of surveillance. It's a lot of, it's not as necessarily as much in-person interaction. A lot of it goes behind the scenes. And a lot of it is Muslim Americans and Arab Americans being surveilled without ever realizing it, unless they have one of these unfortunate interactions that you talked about. And just uh, to analogize to the African-American community, it we're talking about these days, we're talking about police shootings. You never want to be in a situation where a community's only interaction with law enforcement is negative, right? It's, it's, it's either about drug investigations or it's shootings in one instance, or it's 100% about surveillance. That's just not a good look. And it takes trust to, to do these investigations and it takes trust in, in law enforcement to participate. And the incentives are not good there. So what happens in New York with the NYPD? You talked about mass surveillance. Can you uh, shed a little light on uh, these programs and activities that happened that impacted the Arab American and Muslim American communities in New York? Yes. So post 9-11, as I'm sure you're aware, there was a 9-11 commission convening committee that was put together. And their tactics were that if you had these four characteristics of identity, meaning if you were Muslim, if you were Arab, if you prayed and you went to a mosque, you inherently were on suspicion for criminal or terrorist activity. But not only the NYPD target Arab Muslim populations in New York, they went outside of New York and it went into the tri-state area of New Jersey, infiltrating there as well as in Connecticut and Pennsylvania. And this was alarming because there was no probable cause met or actual individual warrants issued in this manner. It was mass surveillance initiated by identity alone. And what under what authority does the NYPD have to even do this? I mean, we've debated and talked about on this show whether or not even the federal government or the NSA has the authority or the president has the authority to do the things that they're doing. Under what authority does a city police department find mass surveillance? Well, there have been several governor orders, executive orders essentially issued, which gives 
the NYPD broad latitude to issue inquiries, right? And inquiries to them is different than an investigation, which to us is not. And so under this, because you're subject to an inquiry versus an investigation, you don't you don't have due process rights in this term. You don't have to be Mirandized. You don't have notice requirements. And this authority was given to them in the name of national security. And so national security has become this broad loophole to surveil and collect information on everyone and anybody. And analogous to the African American community and NYPD is the fact that whenever our America is subject to a terrorist attack, like even our own buildings and offices were targeted and bombed, our regional director, Alex O'Day, was assassinated, the law enforcement resources are not put into effect because we can't be victims of terror. We can only be perpetrators of terror. And that's the same analogy with the African-American community, that you're only here to watch us, not protect us. Yeah, and then that's, of course, not a recipe for cooperation at all. What does an inquiry look like? So let's say that you fit the test, which, as you described it, essentially means you are either Arab or Muslim or both. I mean, it's it's not a very high bar here that we're talking about. It'd be very easy to uh, lump some people into this group. What does that inquiry involve? Does that involve email surveillance, phone tapping, uh, some in-person stuff? I mean, just give us a sense of what it is like to be the subject of an inquiry, which you have noted that is different in their mind than an investigation, but maybe that the difference is in the eye of the beholder. Yes. Yeah, so to be subject to an inquiry is the same as you're being arrested for a crime. But in this aspect, the NYPD and our federal law enforcement believe they have the duty to prevent crime, to pre-crime, and this assumption that they can predetermine who's gonna, who can be a terrorist, even though science has shown there is no scientific basis. And so to be subject to an inquiry means that your email communications, your social media, your basic everyday interactions on cell phone is being followed and monitored. But not only that, but the fact that your name is now put on a database. And there are several databases um, the government has, but the biggest one is the National Screening Terrorist Database, in which there are low threshold requirements to be placed upon, and then you have no right to sufficiently rebut that evidence or clear up any misinformation with the government because you're never put on notice. And even when you put a request through, for instance, like the DHS trip process, they send out a generic answer saying, we can't tell you if you're on the list and we can't tell you if you are on the list, but if you are on the list and it was a mistake, we've corrected it. <laughs> so it, just just trust us essentially. I mean, yes. and and this actually this is this the same list that came up in a debate about gun rights? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So so after the Orlando shooting, there was this debate um, because he was uh, the shooter was an American born Muslim, and um, the question was why wasn't he on a list or what about the people on this list? And there was actually some bills that were passed that were intended to be, they they were well-intentioned, but actually there was kind of a strange bedfellows of like gun rights people in the NRA on the same side as groups like yours, because this list is not, is is far from perfect. And there are people who are on this list who are, who then lose certain rights and they've never been charged with anything. And this is NSEERS. This is the National Security Entry Exit Registration System, or are we talking about something else? No, we're talking about something else. So the NSEERS program was a program that was initiated back in 2010 um, that's exclusively targeted Arab immigrants coming into the country. Ah. Um, The National Screening Terrorist Database is 
uh, a database full of different lists that included no fly list, the watch list, uh, among other lists. Okay. And, and um, these lists, um, people are able to be nominated arbitrarily with whatever reason. So often it's not vetted. And so people with similar names are then caught up in this system. But also prominent political ad- advocates, um, even Ted Kennedy was put on this list. Um, <laughs> leaders of our organization were put on this list. And, and even now to this day are, are subject to extra scrutiny at the airports when they get the four S's. Yeah, and you can imagine in a world where Muhammad is the most common name that this could lead to a lot of screw ups. Correct. So has your group done uh, either litigation or advocacy on some of these problems, you know, whether it be the mass surveillance of the NYPD, uh, the national security list you just referenced? I mean, how has ADC tackled some of these problems that you've identified? We have done both policy and legal work, but also leveraging our coalition partners like the ACLU and Brennan Center because they provide a unique aspect into the the freedom of speech and and 14th Amendment realm. And so some of the work we've done regarding the um, watch list and screening database is providing advocacy support and legal analysis support in the lawsuit of Latif V. Holder, which challenged the DHS TRIP policy as a violation of the 14th Amendment. And in in relation to that also, we also pushed in the Raza suit for changes to the handshoe guidelines, which included providing more oversight mechanisms, ensuring that there's actually a non-discrimination policy by the NYPD, as well as subjecting the NYPD to um, audit and review and basically overwatch by the court system for uh, another five years to make sure they're not implementing these policies. But even going beyond that, as a community of color, we've um, supported various movements to make sure that our communities are having a voice at the table. In regard to the NCS program, we had initiated back in 2010, and the NCS program required all our American immigrants to register with the government providing biometrics, fingerprints, scanning, um, social media, emails, updates on any their locations. And the everything. only criterion for being on this database is that you are Arab American. Well, you're Arab because it was Arab immigrants. It was Arab immigrants. And these were found out through FOIA lawsuits that we had initiated in which we found out that only Arabs were subject to this and there were actual embassy documents that were sent out to embassies across the world, uh, the U.S. embassies across the world to require that. And that's straight up profiling, right? I mean, there's no way of getting around that. If that was your only criterion, (laughs) there's really no other purpose to having that database other than you are an immigrant coming from an Arab country. And there's a lot of Arab countries. And specifically with this database, it required Arab males, right? So it's that same depiction stereotype as the Arab male as dangerous. And it, it stated that it was volu- a voluntary register basis. But if you didn't register, you were automatically deported. And even those who did register were deported um, immediately. It, it affected about 9,000 um, persons. And then those who had uh, were eligible for immigration benefits, whether it's family-based, employment-based, but I had come to United States between 2001 and 2011, were also deported under arbitrary case violence of immigration fraud. So these immigration fraud cases didn't go through, but it had that chilling effect where people were like, we're not going to get this on our record, so we're just going to go back 
to our home country. So the NYPD, obviously, their interest in this is in New York was the site of the 9-11 attacks, and they just don't want another attack. And of course, that is the motivation for what they're doing, whether it's right or wrong. The federal government, similarly, they want to prevent attacks. So you had the Patriot Act, uh, which led to the mass indiscriminate surveillance of all Americans, not just Arab Americans. And that program was shut down because it was just it, politically, it, it was untenable. It was the one thing from the Snowden leaks that just could not stand. So we got rid of that. But there's this big talk these days about countering violent extremism. You often see it abbreviated as CVE. And a lot of that is dealing with social media. Um, but part of it is also this idea that we need to be proactive citizens, right? And the FBI has an interest in preventing terrorism. And they had this program that I saw a lot of chatter on. You, you and I are on similar surveillance lists, you know, reform lists. And I saw a lot of chatter about this don't be a puppet campaign. Now, this is from the FBI. Correct me if I'm wrong. The idea behind this is that students, we're talking about children now, if they see one of their classmates becoming radicalized, don't be a puppet is basically saying don't just sit there, act. So this idea that we're now going to encourage students to notify authorities when their fellow students are radicalizing, do you see this program as problematic? Of course. It's it's the same problem that they've initiated with this campaign, see something, say something. And so this is it's problematic because we are tasking students, we're essentially treated, training them on how to profile. If someone's in, especially stated in the factors on the program, on the website, is that if someone is speaking another language, using multiple social media apps, talking about traveling to suspicious places, what does this essentially mean? But also it, it includes these Typical socioeconomic factors of someone who's at risk for warning is someone who parents don't participate in school, come from a single parent home, who um, may be experiencing poverty. These same socioeconomic factors that have been used to target the African American and Hispanic communities are now just being refiltrated. But also, other than that, it also is subject to the FBI's retention policy. So anyone who goes on this website is subject to FBI monitoring under the DOJ. And more so than that, it also requires teachers now to, to do this reporting, to be on the lookout and watch out for students. And so this is concerning because it has a chilling effect on making sure that students don't expose their identity, but as well as the impact on political speech. And I would say this is more important than anything now with the Arab American community increasing their participation in the political realm. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, government monitor civil rights advocates and environmental advocates. I mean, this is this goes back way before 9-11, this idea that the FBI has an interest in monitoring the perfectly legal First Amendment protected speech of people because it might lead to something else. Uh, quickly, can you see a positive role for something like the Don't Be a Puppet, you know, campaign? So if we if we agree that the criteria are way too broad and you're seeing a lot of parallels to other disadvantaged communities and traveling places having more than one social media account i mean that's that sounds a little ridiculous but what if your classmate really is like talking to isis online or is talking about committing an attack i mean is is it a good thing for the government to try to de like deputize citizens in this way? I mean, do you see any way that the, the program, if it were well-intentioned, could be good? Or is this the kind of thing the government should just not be doing? 
I don't see any way this program be, can be good. The government should not be in our school classrooms, and they don't understand the impact that this can have on our community who already suffer from mass bullying. Our students are afraid to go to school, especially after the recent attacks, that they will be targeted. Also, we have to think about the fact that the government has offered and wants to push these programs as social studies class classes, you know, uh, places political where classes. you might have debate about things like our policy in the and Middle this, East. Yeah. And so inherently you're targeting students who look or are a certain type of way. And so even the teacher unions have come out against this program because of not only the bullying aspect, but already the fact that our schools are already under mass surveillance with, you know, um, video cameras and um, uh, forgetting the word right now, but uh, security checks for weapons. Yeah, and checkpoints. Things like that, checkpoints. Yeah. So we're just only increasing this, this problem and issue. And it's just, the school classroom is supposed to be a place for academic freedom and learning and the teacher, uh, you know, professional duty and relationship with their students is very important. And we risk suffering that, especially because already our Americans, if we see something going on a terrorist, we're the first ones reported to the FBI. So it's not, not something that need, they need to reinvigorate or push upon us. Yeah. I mean, your basic point is that because of all the suffering that this community has faced, as a result of terrorist attacks, if anyone is going to be incentivized to report on something like radicalization, it's going to be this community because they're the ones who suffer if the attack actually happens the most and their rights are thrown out. I would like to close on this social media question because this is a really interesting one as we talk about ISIS using social media to recruit and a lot of radicalization happening online. And um, a lot of times when there's an attack, the only evidence that we see that this person was in danger of becoming radicalized happens because we get their computer or something like that. And we've talked about, you know, NYPD surveillance. We've talked about these federal programs. But you see a lot of things these days about, you know, President Obama talking to tech companies about terrorism, you know, sitting down with Silicon Valley companies, Facebook, Twitter. How can we combat violent extremism? And then you've seen some bills in Congress that would kind of put reporting and mandate requirements on companies. But do you see a danger in the government cooperating with social media companies to counter violent extremism? I mean, the intention here is to remove bad content without infringing on free speech, right? I mean, that's the ideal. Do you see a problem with the beginning of this relationship between Silicon Valley and the government when it comes to countering violent extremism? Definitely, because then we are presuming the fact that there's a such thing as radicalization. We don't believe there's anything such thing as radicalization. And frankly, if there is, it's not a problem to the Arab American community. Um, particularly, there have been more terrorism type of attacks from other uh, ideology groups um, beyond the Arab American community. But also, ODNI Clapper himself said there's only been 250 incidents of persons trying to travel abroad or being quote unquote radicalized to travel abroad since 2011. And that, so that's America, that's the director of national intelligence, James Correct. Clapper, who famously lied to Congress about NSA surveillance. Um, he, he has said that there's only been 250 instances of an American citizen trying to travel abroad for what purpose? Um, to re either recruit or join the terrorist fighters out there in the Middle East. And those or, numbers uh, are way lower than what we're seeing from Europe, right? 
Correct. Yeah. Not not only are they way lower, but it's only 250 Americans out of a population of 320 million. So that's less than 0.1%. So is there really a problem? Are we just wasting resources? Are we, you know, there are better ways to spend our money on education and, and employment and opportunities for our communities. And so we don't need to get these resources only after we have to criminalize ourselves um, for, to get the, res- the resources we need. And so a sense the government is shirking their responsibility. And so I, I don't see, uh, I think we have to make sure and be aware of the danger of removing content online. You know, always been the, the best policy to bad speech, always been more speech, not to remove speech. And so we see a concern where tech communities, tech sectors get involved because already government officials don't know how to navigate these waters. And now we're tasking this responsibility on the tech sector. I think that's very problematic, Um, as well as the fact that we've known in history that tech communities have been used to surveil political groups. Um, ADC was under surveillance post 9-11 up into 2005. And so we, we recognize that these issues are problematic. While the goal is commendable, no one wants to see violence happen. Uh, but we need to just make sure that we focus on actual opportunities that will delineate from actual attacks happening. When you continue to segregate a group out and continue to isolate them, this is what leads or breeds to, quote unquote, the ISIS propaganda that's being used. And so bills like this, policies like this, are actually more problematic and counterproductive than what they intend. Someone told me the other week that everyone is the best, that everyone is trying to target violent extremism and head on, let's get violence to violent extremism. But maybe the answer is to not target it directly. There has to be the underlying issues addressed in order to see uh, a productive um, outcome. Yeah, and my last question was going to be, do you see a positive role for government? But you kind of just answered it, this idea that rather than try to remove speech, add more speech. And to to an extent, the government is working on that, you know, trying to counter the propaganda. But you, you bring an important point is that any kind of laws against what can be said Who's that going to be used against? And, you know, Europe has hate speech laws, which are designed to protect disadvantaged communities, but then they'll turn around and use it against that disadvantaged community. And I have, you know, one quick example before we go of in Paris, there was the horrible attack that killed over 120 people and they have hate speech laws in France. And those laws were not used against white French people who were complaining about the Muslims who attacked them. It was used against a Muslim comedian for joking about the attack. So those laws can backfire in a very big way. Um, Just to wrap up the show, I mean, where do you see this going? There's that social media reporting bill in Congress, which hasn't seemed to go anywhere. There's this cooperation between the president and tech companies. Where do you see the future of Arab American and Muslim American surveillance? I think we still have a a long battle to go. I think we have to make sure that our population is educated. ADC has been doing that, doing a lot of briefings and outreach to make sure our populations don't engage or um, take DHS CVE funding. And and the, the issue comes because we lack funding, it's a, it's a very easy to say, hey, we'll just take the money and do all the programming. So we need to do a lot of education, a lot of resilience, and, and develop our own um, 
um, type of program and so we can be self-sufficient and not rely on programs that are intended to um, surveil or entrap us. Oh, and speaking of programming, uh, you've got an event this week. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, September 26th, I believe. So this might come out later, but this week, uh, tell us a little bit about the event. Yes, yeah, so ADC is hosting our national convention. This is our 36th one here in Washington, D.C. at the Marriott Warren Park Hotel. And this convention will focus on not only will discuss today's surveillance at CVE, but also the immigration issues with refugees in which the same type of discriminatory applications have been applied to prevent refugees from coming into this country because of their identity as well. We will also get into a little bit about, of course, Palestine in the BDS and First Amendment speech issues, and as well as focusing on um, civil rights overall, employment discrimination, and housing discrimination against our communities. Uh, we will be honoring Wade Henderson who's the executive director of the Leadership Conference, as well as Jumana Musa with the Civil Rights Award. And we'll also have um, UNHCR Regional Representative Shelley Pitterman speaking there as well. Well, great. Um, I'm guessing that by the time this comes out, the event will have concluded. However, I will be linking to either write-ups or videos of the event in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. Uh, that's it for today's show. My guest has been Yolanda Rondon, staff attorney with the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Yolanda, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Feel free to pitch ideas, topics, and guests. Find this podcast in the iTunes store where you can leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.